welcome to Sex Questions, where every day this week we are asking, discussing, wrestling with some of the big questions that you and I have, all of us face at some point in life, about sex and intimacy and relationships. A few things to say right at the start of today. We really want to hear your questions, and we'll have a bit of time to answer some of those. We're not going to do all of them, sorry, there's so many of us here, but if you've got questions, we're going to use a thing called Slido. So head to slido.com. And there'll be a place to put in this code, SQ Wednesday, and that'll then give you the chance to put in your question. And we've got our friend Jez with us, who's going to help host a bit of panel discussion and a bit of Q&A later. Also, we know that all the topics we're talking about this week, including today, are not kind of abstract theories, they're real life. For lots of us, the stuff that we are talking about this week will really hit home. It will hit home to experiences in our lives, the lives of people we know and we love. We might find there are particular questions that come up for us as individuals, maybe painful things that come up, things we want to talk about, maybe pray with someone. And so we're going to make sure we're looking out for each other this week. And so if anything, today or across these seminars kind of stir stuff up for you personally, and you think, actually, I would just be really helped by being able to talk to someone or having someone to pray with me, please don't feel shy about seeking that out and asking for that. Your youth leaders are a great place to start. They're the people who know you best on site, who love you and are already walking alongside you. So why not go back and talk to one of them this afternoon if some of the stuff today really kind of resonates with you? Or also we're going to have some of the prayer team who'll be kind of this side of the venue at the end. So as people are leaving, if you want to, you'll be able to go over there to chat with them and to pray with them as well. Yesterday, our first big question was about sex. Why does God care? And we talked about what sex is, and God cares because he cares about us, and he cares about us seeing sex as a signpost pointing us to Jesus. And today, we're going to talk about one of the kind of outworkings of that in a particular experience, the experience that both Ashley and I share. We're going to share some of our stories. We're going to talk about sexuality, and we're asking the big question, does God love gay people? And we're going to start by hearing a bit from Ashley. So let's give a warm welcome and encouragement to Ashley. Thank you. I'll take that. You haven't heard what I have to say yet, so um, we'll see how that goes. I am fighting the urge to say Iron Man. I am Ashley. Um, hello. As Andrew said, yesterday uh, we were talking about why God cares about sex. Andrew shared with us that God cares about sex because he cares about us. Uh, sexuality is a, this powerful gift. It's designed to point us to God, uh, to teach us about his desire for us. And we talked about how God's guidelines for sex are there to help us experience sex and marriage as this signpost, this metaphor that they're made to be. They're meant to point us towards the intimacy, the unity, the oneness that God wants with us, the marriage of Jesus and his church that you can read about in the Bible. So some of these guidelines, therefore, are that sex is reserved for marriage and marriage for one man and one woman which I know is a controversial thing to say, and raises today's question, does God love gay people? This is a question that affects me personally. I'm attracted to both men and women, but predominantly to women. So does God love me? In figuring out the answer to this question for myself, I had the advantage of growing up going to church. I was a nerdy teacher's pet type. I knew all the right answers. I knew all the Bible stories. The right answer is always Jesus. Um, I knew about this good God who they said loved me, but it never really impacted the rest of my life. I would have called myself a Christian, but looking back, I wasn't really following Jesus. I didn't really have a relationship with God. And that was me for many years. I don't really have a particular moment where that changed. I know some people can pinpoint like to the minute when it was they gave their lives to Jesus. But for others, it's more of a slow process, and I'm definitely in that camp. 
So I think through my teens, my early 20s, I was moving towards Jesus. I was becoming more aware of this gap between where I was and where I could be, increasingly where I wanted to be in terms of my relationship with him. But there was still this sexuality question for me. When I was 15, I started dating one of my friends. She and I both went to church. We both knew the Bible had some stuff to say about this, again, as we talked about yesterday. Uh, She and I were together on and off for about three years in the end. And for a lot of that time, I was wrestling with this tension between wanting this relationship with her, but also wanting a relationship with Jesus. It, It felt like I had these two conflicting parts of myself, and that in order to fully embrace one of them, I would have to give up the other one. And I couldn't do that. I couldn't give up on Jesus. I had seen enough of him to know that he was too good for me to walk away from. But I also couldn't deny these feelings of same-sex attraction that I had. They were there. They were a part of me. So, yeah, I didn't know how I could follow Jesus with all of these feelings going on. It felt like I had to somehow cut out a piece of myself in order to be somebody who could follow him. And I didn't have a clue how to do that. I wasn't sure I even wanted to. So I was confused. I was hurt. I was angry. And I was daily faced with what seemed like this incredibly unfair choice that I had to make. One thing I wish I'd known back then was this. Sexual attraction describes what I want, not who I am. Our culture has made sexual attraction synonymous with identity. It says they're the same thing. Like, think about the language that we use. We say, I am gay or straight or bi. We don't talk about it as something that we feel or experience. We talk about it as something that we are. But I think that's actually an incorrect and unhelpful way of talking about this stuff. There is a difference between what we want and who we are. Sexual desire, even sexual orientation, it's about, it's about desire. It's not about identity. Who I'm attracted to doesn't define who I am. Only Jesus gets to define that. He made me. He knows me deeply, back to front, inside out, all the bits I'd rather he didn't know, uh, all the things I don't even know about myself. He is the only one who gets to define who I am. I think desire is actually a bad basis for our identity. The world around us is telling us, you need to look inside yourself. You need to listen to your desires in order to figure out who you are. I think if that's true, that's a lot of pressure. Like, What if you get it wrong and you miss out on your true self or your best life? What if you have two conflicting desires? How do you know which of them actually describes the real you? What if your desires change? What do you do then? Now, if I'm looking for identity, I need to go back to the source. I need to go back to God's word where he tells me things like, I'm made in his image. I am his child. I'm handpicked to be his. I'm a citizen of heaven. That is a life-giving and a stable place to root my identity. The Bible never defines people in terms of their sexual attractions or orientation. They're not who we are. And understanding that has been so helpful to me. It, it no longer feels like I somehow have to cut out part of myself so I'm able to follow Jesus. Instead, I've realized that God is simply asking me to respond to my desires in a way that pleases and honors him. See, desires and feelings are not inherently wrong, not even same-sex attraction. When I notice that a woman is attractive, that's involuntary. We are, we're made to see and to appreciate beauty in this world. That's how we're wired but I do have a choice about how I respond to all my feelings and my desires. Let's use something different as an example. If I am angry at my brother and I want to smack him around the head with the acoustic guitar that I happen to have in my hand, this, of course, is not based on real events. Um, (laughs) In that situation, I have a choice. I could do what I want to do, causing damage to my brother's head and to our relationship, 
and to myself. I think sin actually damages us just as much as anything else. So I could choose that, or I could make a different choice. I could choose to honor God and this human being made in his image, and I could walk away rather than lashing out. My anger was not inherently wrong or sinful. If, if you'd known my brother at 14, you would say that my anger was in fact right and justified. But the way that I responded, I hope this isn't being recorded because he'll have things to say. The way I responded, how I chose to act out of my anger, that could have been wrong. And it's the same with sexual desire. My sexual desires are not wrong in themselves. They're not inherently wrong. But how I respond to them could be wrong. Do I entertain fantasies? Do I lean into lust? Do I pursue a sexual relationship outside the bounds that God has set? Or do I praise God for the beauty that I see in this human being? Do I uh, praise the one who created it as a signpost to him rather than praising the created thing itself? Do I recognize my legitimate desires for intimacy and for love and go to God to satisfy them? And I think that's true for all of us, for all of our desires. We can turn from God, indulge these desires in ways that he says are wrong, or we can turn to him. We can praise him for what he's made rather than praising the thing itself. We can ask him for help and for wisdom and to satisfy all our desires and needs in the way that only he really can. So let's come back to our question. Does God love gay people? If we're talking about people who experience attraction to the same sex, and if our feelings and our desires are not wrong, then we can say, yes, he does. God loves people who experience same-sex attraction, just like God loves people who want to batter their siblings with musical instruments, and just like he loves people who like writing excellent poetry, or people who want to give all their money to charity, or people who would rather sleep in on a Sunday morning than go to church. We might call those feelings and desires good or bad, but nothing can ever disqualify us from the love of God. No feeling, no desire disqualifies us. But the question then becomes, what about when we act on those desires in a way that God doesn't like? What about when we do things that the Bible calls sin? When I was dating this girl and I was confused and I was mad at God and I was definitely acting in ways that he doesn't like, did he love me then? I haven't talked about the Bible yet, and that bothers me, so I'm going to go to a couple of verses to find an answer for this. Romans 5 verse 8, if you are in my youth group, take note because you have to memorize this today. Uh, Romans 5 verse 8, God proves his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, while we were still doing things that God says are sin, still acting in ways that he doesn't like, Jesus loved us enough to die for us. That's how God proves his love for us. Or Ephesians 2, it says, You were dead in your transgressions and sins. We were so wrapped up in our sin that we were dead in it. We were powerless. We were helpless. We were stuck there forever. But it says, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. When we put our faith in Jesus, God changes everything. He rescues us. He makes us alive. And he does this because of his great love for us. Even when we're still sinners, even when we're still dead in our sin, doing things that God does not like. God loves us not because of what we do, but because of who he is. Throughout the Bible, God is described as compassionate and gracious and abounding in steadfast love. The love of God doesn't depend on my choices. It's based on his own unchanging character. So when I was mad at him, He loved me. When I was sleeping with my girlfriend, he loved me. When I was testing the boundaries and trying life without him and ignoring everything that he said he wanted for me, 
he loved me. And I know this from the Bible, verses like the ones we've just looked at, but I also know it through living it. Through that whole period of my life, I experienced his grace and his forgiveness in such a deep way. I was constantly repeating this cycle of sin, say sorry, promise to never do it again, do it again the very next day, or, you know, the very next minute. Um, But he never got impatient with me. He never said, that's the final straw, you're out, I'm done with you. He never said that I had lost his love. He just kept showing me there was even more of it than I had thought. So does God love gay people? Yes. Yes, he does. God loves you no matter what your attractions are, and God loves you no matter how you respond to those attractions, no matter what you do. Is that not good news? But, sorry to cut off the applause, but if we just stop there, we heave a sigh of relief, and we carry on doing whatever we want, we have missed something incredibly important. God loves us. God is very, very, very good. God is someone that we want to be close to. We want to be living every day in relationship with. That is the best way to live. But our sin keeps us from him. Over those three years, with all of my anger and confusion and doubt and wondering, I was not close to God. He loved me, yes, but we were separated. I wasn't living in the the peace, the joy, the hope, the freedom that only come in his presence. Again, in the book of Romans, Paul says that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, which means turning away from our sin and going God's way instead. God loves us, so we are meant to respond. We're meant to turn away from things that he hates, things he says are bad for us. We're meant to trust him and follow him and receive his love rather than looking elsewhere for what we need. So eventually, this is what I started to do. Uh, When I was 18, 19, my girlfriend and I finally broke up for good much drama. Um, Around then, I started to actually spend time daily with Jesus. It was literally just 15 minutes at the start of my day. I would sing a worship song or two. I would read one or two verses from the Bible. It took me two years to read the book of Luke. Uh, And I would spend a few minutes praying. And that was it. That was my deliberate, intentional time with God every day. But those small steps were so significant. I was actively seeking to be closer to him. I was getting to know him better. Of course, by this time, I had developed feelings for somebody else, uh, another woman, so I again had this choice. How am I going to respond to my desires? Will I pursue a relationship with her, or will I obey God in this? And that was really hard. So I would go to God, and I would say, I don't know if I can do this. I don't think I can promise you my life. I don't think I can even promise you my week, to be honest. I don't think I'll make it that far with you. Uh, But you can have today. I'll follow you today. I won't pursue that relationship today. And then we'll see what tomorrow brings. And I think we went on like that for the next couple of years. God is so patient. And in that time, I started to see that he's actually worth it. He, he is actually really, 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 really good. All of his commands are good. Even these ones that I don't like, all of his commands are good and they lead to our flourishing. It is better to go his way. Life is better when it is lived his way. I'm a decade in, and I am more convinced of this than ever. I still experience same-sex attraction. I'm still following Jesus, and I still find that difficult and painful at times. But if you remember nothing else I have said today, I want you to remember this. He is worth it. After a decade of this particular battle and everything else that life has thrown at me, I have absolutely no doubts about this. He is worth it. He is worth having, even if having him means giving up everything else. 
you might still be thinking, this doesn't sound plausible living this way. This doesn't sound good. So before I finish, I want to mention three gifts that God gives us that make it possible for us to live in line with what he says about sexuality. And that's whether we are opposite sex or same-sex attracted or any other whatever word I put in there. I was going to say bucket of fish, but that's probably not what I meant. Anyway, good gifts that God gives us. Number one is singleness. Singleness is a good gift. It's not second best. It's not the unpleasant period of waiting before finally you can ascend to the higher plane of marriage. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about how singleness and marriage are both good gifts. They're both as good as each other. Although in that letter, Paul goes as far as saying that he wishes everyone was single. He says when you're married, it's like you're more divided. Uh, He says the married man or woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please their wife or their husband, and their interests are divided. But then he says the single person is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. There's a different way that you can live, a different focus you can have if you were single. Marriage isn't bad. Marriage is a good gift in itself. It's an opportunity to reflect something of the heart of God in a way that you can't when you're single. But marriage takes a lot of your time and your energy and your attention, as it should. If you're single, those resources can be used differently. You can invest into other relationships, other things in a different way. And that's a gift. So that's the first gift that God gives us to help us live in line with what he says about sexuality, singleness itself. The second gift I want to mention is friendship. And I will probably have to rein myself in a bit because I probably could have talked this entire time just about friendship. In our culture, I think we struggle with this. We don't know how to untangle intimacy from sex. If two people are really close, if they know each other inside out, they can say anything to each other, they're committed and supportive and sacrificial towards each other, we don't know how to understand that in any context other than a sexual one. Just one example. I read an article while I was prepping this about Louis Tomlinson and Harry Styles. I hate to be the person who brings up One Direction. I did think I was better than this, Um, but we'll move on. So they were great friends. But so many people started to ship them as a couple. They, they couldn't believe that their relationship was not a sexual one. To the point where they felt really self-conscious just being around each other. They um, yeah, were worried about how other people were going to read into their friendship and their intimacy. People just couldn't seem to understand that these two guys could genuinely love each other, express genuine affection for each other, and there was nothing sexual about it. In our minds, intimacy and sex go hand in hand. We think you can't have one without the other. And because we think this, we end up avoiding or missing out on intimacy in our non-sexual friendships. We reduce friendship to something that's only surface level. But friendship is meant to be so much more than that. It's meant to be rich and deep and lasting and intimate. Deuteronomy talks about the friend who is as your own soul. Like that is a perfectly normal thing to say. David and Jonathan, who are two friends who always get dragged into this conversation, in 1 Samuel we read things like, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Or in the New Testament we see things like John leaning back at dinner with his head on Jesus' chest. In our culture, with our watered-down view of friendship, we struggle to understand those things as anything other than a sexual relationship. But intimacy doesn't have to be sexual. A soul-deep bond does not have to be sexual. David and Jonathan, or John and Jesus, had a rich, deep friendship. And friendship like that is possible for all of us. My friend Charlie happens to be sat just there. Hi, hon. I love Charlie. 
I love her character. I love her heart. I, I can't look at you. I'll cry. I love the things that she's passionate about, the way she expresses those. Our friendship is intimate. She knows things about me that few other people ever will. She has an open invitation to challenge me whenever I need it and graciously does not do that all the time. We can talk for like six solid hours or we can spend a whole day in comfortable silence. We have fought and cried and laughed ourselves silly and shared our lives together and none of it has been sexual. Intimacy is possible without sex. In fact, I would argue it is vital. We need these deep, lasting, intimate relationships where we are known and loved anyway. Ultimately, it is in God that we have this need met. Just like with any other need, we have to look to God first. But God uses these human relationships to show us even more of his love for us. He loves us through other people. One way that God expresses his love for me is through friends like Charlie. So friendship is another gift from God that makes living his way, living in line with what he says about sexuality, possible and even good. The last one I will mention is church which I know we've been talking about in the 15s to 18s. Church, unfortunately, is made up of people. And so church is flawed. It can be rife with mistakes and pain and damage. But church is God's idea. Church is God's plan for blessing the world. Church is another of these ways that God loves you. Church is family. Family can be really hard sometimes, but a good family does you good. They knock the edges off your pride and your self-reliance. They encourage you. They challenge you. They remind you who you are. In this church family, you have the opportunity to receive all this good stuff and to love and to serve people who don't deserve it, just like your father does for you. In terms of sexuality, church means that no one is deprived of family. No one is left isolated or alone. God gives us church to come alongside us, to help us when we're weak, to remind us of the truth and to encourage us to keep going. So that's just three gifts that God gives us to help us as we seek to obey him with our sexualities. It's still not easy. It does cost. That's kind of the deal. Jesus said we should count the cost before we decide to follow him. He said following him means taking up our cross. In other words, death. When Jesus took up his literal cross, he was going to his execution. When he says take up your cross, he means walk into death. Not necessarily in the literal way that he did, although many people are killed for their faith in Jesus. But following Jesus will cost you your life in one way or another. We have to die to what we want, to going our own way, in terms of our sexual desires and in terms of everything else that we want. But the amazing thing about following Jesus into death is that resurrection is waiting on the other side. Following Jesus leads to life. It leads to flourishing. It is the best way to live, even when it costs. Jesus also said that anyone who gave up things for him would receive back more than they gave. It costs, but it's worth it. It's like giving up a handful of old chocolate coins from last year's Christmas stocking uh, for a pile of gold that could cover a continent. Or it's like giving up a, a grubby puzzle with half the pieces missing for a VR headset with an endless supply of games. Paul in Philippians says that everything he had... And everything he was is now absolute rubbish to him compared to the incredible beauty and excellence of knowing Jesus. Jesus is worth it. His love is the greatest love that there is. He is better than anyone else you have ever known. And being loved by him is better than being loved by anybody else. All of the intimacy, the belonging, the joy that you are looking for, whether you're gay or straight, you will find it ultimately only in him. So does God love gay people? Yes. 
He sees us in our confusion of identity and he says, let me tell you who you really are. Let me speak life and affirmation over you. He sees us in our struggles, in our sin, and he says, let me forgive you and set you free and show you a better way. He sees us in our singleness and he says, what a gift this life is to the world. He sees us in our loneliness and he says, let me make you rich in intimate relationships. He is good and his commands, all of his commands are good and they lead to our flourishing. Obeying him is worth the cost. If you're gay, God values you. He loves you. He wants you. He's not disgusted by you. He's not ashamed of you. You are welcome. His arms are open wide to you. We are going to go into a panel discussion in a minute and chat a bit more and answer some of your questions. But before we do that, we want to give you a minute to discuss this amongst yourselves. As Andrew has said, we want to start conversations here. So take a couple minutes, get into small groups, have a chat about what I've just said. What sticks out for you? Okay, if you could bring your conversations to a close. We've got 20 minutes, 25, no, how long are we doing? 25 minutes or so now. Um, this afternoon we've got an, uh, an afternoon seminar at three o'clock which is now being held in the engaged tent which is kind of off to the side here um, where we're gonna where you're welcome to come it's a chat a further chat with Andrew and Ashley and they're going to be sharing more of their stories thank you so much it was very moving and inspiring in fact astonishing is the word I used so thank you really really good um, if you're new to the seminar and you didn't come yesterday, this is Andrew who's hosting it. He welcomed you. Andrew works for, as part of his roles, works for Living Out, which is an organization that seeks to equip churches to engage with matters of faith and sexuality, uh, to help churches better speak about and serve gay Christians and those who are same-sex attracted. Andrew himself identifies as someone who is same-sex attracted. That's probably not the right way of talking about wording. Um, you can talk about that as a challenge. How to talk about these without tripping yourself up with your language. Anyway, okay, let's start off. So we're going to have a, a brief time just them answering questions themselves that they've thought about. And then we've got, in fact, how many? Now 82 questions. We've got a day, right? No um, more food. So like I'll just let the... The guys know that nothing else is happening today except this, and we'll see who can stick it out for the full 82, which is probably worth you coming to the afternoon seminar then to ask more of these questions. So, Andrew, let's start with this one uh, for yourself. Have you struggled to believe that God loves you as an LGB person? Uh, this may be an unhelpful answer. I think I actually haven't, but I think it's helpful for me to think through why is it that actually from the beginning of my teen years, I've been exclusively same-sex attracted, never really experienced romantic and sexual attraction to girls, always to guys. Why is it that's my experience? And yet actually I've never really, because of that question, God's love for me. I think part of it was I've been really blessed to be brought up with a good understanding of who God is. And that's what I think is so key. We, with all these big topics, we want to think about the topics, but actually knowing who God is is so vital actually to understanding how we walk with him through big topics and big experiences. And I think actually always knowing that God has, for one thing, God has decisively proved his love for me in sending Jesus. You know, it's pretty unquestionable whether God loves you once you realize he sent Jesus, his one and only son, to die on a cross to take your sins so you could spend eternity with him. I think knowing that the Bible reveals God not as this kind of caricature we so often have of this kind of big angry guy in the sky who's always wagging his finger, always wanting us to try harder, but actually, as the Bible puts it, a God who is gracious and merciful, who's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, that at the core of God, 
is a desire to forgive, a desire to love, a desire to do us good. And I think that's really helped me. But I think also what's really helped me is always being aware of there's a big distinction between the fact that I notice an attractive guy and I feel a sense of uh, attraction and draw towards him. There's a big distinction between that and my acting on that. Whether that's my taking my notice or my observation of beauty in a guy and taking that in my mind and beginning to lust over that and do something with their mind, whether that's in my actions. And actually just realizing, no, no, there's a big difference between my instinctive kind of uh, automatic reaction, in a sense, to male beauty and actually acting on that and even my mind or my actions is really helpful, which is not to say I've lived perfectly. I shared yesterday, I definitely haven't lived perfectly and the gospel covers those things. But actually, I've always been so clear and know actually my actions, my thoughts and my actions, they're what matters my instinctive desires don't disqualify me. They don't disgust God. They don't turn him away from me. So I think those two things, really knowing who God is and really getting that thing actually of, yeah, okay, I have these um, attractions, these desires, but I have a choice of how I respond to those, actually. And the Holy Spirit empowers me to respond in line with Jesus' teaching, helps me be confident. No, God loves me, including in the fact that I'm same sex attracted or gay. Ashley, obviously you shared the answer to your question there, but has that been something that's been a journey for you as well? Uh, yeah, I think for me it's more because I sin generally that that is more the struggle. It's not focused around sexuality for me. Um, I know how often I mess up, so I can have a tendency to think God kind of just tolerates me rather than loves me uh, in the expansive way the Bible talks about. Mm. So, um, yeah, for me the challenge is more, again, as Andrew was saying, just learning more about the heart of God, just spending more time with him, getting to know him better, realizing, oh, wow, he loves me even more than I thought he did, even though... I mess up. Mm. Oh, well, let's start with you with this question then. What's it been like as you've gone on this journey, thinking through how your sexuality and faith go together and intersect? I'm going to let you do that. Oh. Um, at the start, it was really hard. So I guess when I was kind of the age of most of you guys in here, which we've seen 10 and 15 years ago, no one was really talking about this. I, I sat probably on this campsite, I think, yeah, and heard it talked about as there are these people out there who experienced this thing. And God really loves them, but they're out there. I remember sitting quietly thinking, but I'm in here. You're describing these people, and I'm in here. Should I not be here? And I think one of the most difficult things to me was just the fact that the church either didn't talk about being gay and same-sex attraction, or when they did, it was a, this is people out there in the world, not people in the church. And what I love is that we now get to do stuff like this, where we're able to say, this is our experience. Here's some of our stories. Here's where we've got it wrong. Here's where actually we're finding Jesus is amazing, and we're starting a conversation. So for me, it was really hard, partly because of that. I just didn't feel a, a freedom to talk about it because no one was starting the conversation. And so my first few years of really wrestling with it were wrestling alone. I didn't tell anyone for a good four years, probably, between kind of becoming aware that I was attracted to guys and then eventually telling someone. So I think that was what was so difficult. And what's so great now is we're in a place where it is safe. We can have these conversations. But then there are big things to wrestle with. Actually, you know, I had to wrestle with the Bible myself. And that's what I want to encourage any of us to do, actually. This seminar stream is deliberately called Sets Questions because we're all wrestling with these questions. And I had to sit down and wrestle with what does the Bible say? And actually, I really had to. I tell this story a lot, so you might have heard it. I found myself doing my A-levels, doing RS. Uh, doing a whole half of my A-level on Christianity and same-sex attraction and same-sex relationships. In a class of uh, 13 people, everyone else, all the other students were girls. I was the only guy in there. The teacher was gay, was going to become a Catholic priest, decided he couldn't live by the church's teachings, so became uh, a teacher. And I had to work out 
wow, what do I think the Bible says about this? And he kind of forced me in this place, but actually at kind of 16, 17, wrestling with the Bible, reading some helpful books was so important. I gave me this foundation of, okay, I know what the scriptures say, and I trust that this is God's good for me. So it was a, a difficult wrestling, but I'm so glad that God kind of put me in a situation where I had to get serious. I couldn't just kind of drift along. I was like, I need to know what God says. I love Jesus. I want to follow him. I'm going to dig into that. Wow. Well, I've got some other pre-prepared questions, but given that our numbers have jumped to 107 questions now, um, I'm going to actually just dive into the, the Q&A because you've asked some really thoughtful and emotive questions. Um, and the way the system works, you can vote a question to the top if, if it's a question that you've got and you'd like to see that. So the question that's got the most votes, 24 people have, would like to ask this question. Why do we treat gay couples very differently to the way we treat remarried divorce couples when the theology and teaching for both are so intertwined? It's an interesting question. Great question. I agree. Yeah, wow. <laughs> I mean, you know, so, so one thing we as so UK churches have to put our hands up and say, we have been inconsistent. We have sometimes held a very clear line, and it might be a biblical line, but we've often done it in an unloving way on same-sex relationships. And I think we can say, frankly, we have not done that on divorce and remarriage. And divorce and remarriage, when you look at the biblical material, might be a little bit more debatable. I think, actually, it's a little bit less clear to pin down exactly what is the teaching of Scripture on the acceptability or non of remarriage after divorce. So there's a slight understandableness that we really have to wrestle with the Scriptures. And Christians who are seeking to love Jesus and really follow the Bible do land in different places on there. And I see how that happens. But nevertheless, I think the reality is we as Christians have to what has them say we have picked on gay people. For decades, we have done that. But what I'm really encouraged on is I think the tide is turning. I think in the last 10 years, more people are speaking out. We're thinking we're having more healthy conversations, as it were. And that's one of the things I've heard lots of people say, actually, we need to recognize we've been imbalanced in some of how we've done our kind of sexual ethics and our relationship ethics. And we need to get that right. We need to listen to the whole of the Bible. And actually, we as Christians need to apologize for where sometimes we've really hurt people because we've been really clear on what the Bible says here and actually been pretty lax and let things go in other things. Mm. Thank you. Um, okay, next question. Oh, it's been moved because, okay. It's, the thing I don't understand is that unlike other sins, stealing and lying, etc., being gay doesn't hurt anyone. So why does God care? The way that we define right and wrong in our culture, I think, is very based around this, does it hurt anyone? That's, that's, if it hurts someone, it's, it's wrong. If it doesn't hurt anyone, then surely it's fine. I think that is cultural. I don't think that is the way that right and wrong are defined globally, so that's just an interesting point. But also, I think that is not how God defines what is right and wrong. And I think we need to make a choice. Are we going to try and define right and wrong for ourselves which if you read Genesis is kind of what happened at the beginning of the story. They said, we're going to decide what's right and wrong here. We're going to, we're going to decide this fruit in the garden is good for eating. That, that God has said, don't eat it, but we've decided it's good and problems ensue. Or we decide, we'll trust God in this, even if perhaps our view is a bit different, we're going to trust God with it. And I think we, because we are imperfect people, we're living in an imperfect world, there are going to be points where what we think and feel and what seems fairly natural to us does conflict with what God says. And this is a big one in our culture 
where what the Bible teaches, what God says, and what our culture would say, the, the things that we have been brought up believing are different. And that's just worth noting. Yeah, I tell you, it's really helpful. And it's just um, helpful to think, basically this comes down to whether you believe there's a God and whether God made the world. If there's no God and if God didn't make the world, how on earth do we decide right or wrong? The best bet is let's try not to hurt each other. So let's just do everything based on kind of harm and non-harm. But if there's a God who created the world, and if he's a good God, which everything we see about him in the Bible tells us he is, the fact that he's saying his son means he's a good God, then actually we can trust that he has designed things purposefully with good purpose, good plan, good design, and that what he says to us is for our flourishing. And so suddenly ethics, right and wrong, doesn't become just about harm. It becomes about there's this God who made us and loves us and has a plan for our flourishing. Therefore, even when we feel differently, he's the one who knows better. The creator knows far better than I, the creature, know kind of how to live. And that I think is helpful. And just also to point out, pretty much all of us in this room will believe that some things are wrong, even if there's no harm. Let me give you a quick thought experiment. Imagine you have someone who's a cannibal and really wants to eat people. Most of us would say eating a person is wrong. But then imagine you find someone who is very willing to die and to be eaten by this person. Nobody's getting harmed. They're going to do it behind closed doors. No one's going to know it's happened. No one's going to get offended. No one is harmed most of us are going to say, that's not right. There are lots of different things like that. Even the fact most of us probably wouldn't eat dog meat, where you went elsewhere in the world, we would happily eat dog meat. All these things just show us it's not just about harm. All of us make ethical decisions, right and wrong, on more than harm. It's not odd that the Bible and that God should do that as well. And if there is a God, it is making sense that we should follow his ways, and that's good for us. That's really helpful. Thank you. Next question. Why do we still accept the Old Testament teaching against homosexuality when many other Old Testament teachings, wearing wool and linen, for example, have been scrapped? Really important question. The main and most important answer is Jesus. So Jesus comes along and Jesus reaffirms what the Old Testament said. I I mentioned briefly in passing yesterday, Jesus in Matthew 19 and Mark 10 defines marriage, which is the relationship which sex takes place as a one man, one woman for life union. Jesus elsewhere uses the word pornea, and you can hear there the kind of echo to our word porn. The word pornea in a Jewish context of the time is thinking any sex outside of a one-man, one-woman marriage. And Jesus condemns and says any sex outside of that context doesn't fit. So what Jesus is saying is the Old Testament stuff this, uh, says this stuff, and I am reaffirming that. Paul will do the same. Paul the Apostle, when he talks about same-sex relationships, will deliberately use language which is alluding to what the Old Testament says. But why is that? Isn't that really unfair that we can eat shellfish now, but we can't be in a, a gay relationship or a gay marriage? What's going on? What's going on is there are certain rules in the Old Testament which are like this giant illustration. We call it ritual purity. It's about being clean and unclean. It's not about being guilty and doing stuff wrong and getting punished. It's about being clean or unclean. And the whole point is you need to be clean to get near to God. And if you're unclean because you encounter a dead body or you eat the wrong kind of insects or you have a bodily discharge, you have to do stuff before you can approach the place where God lived in the camp. And just imagine that every day, everything you're eating, you're thinking, is this clean or unclean? Everything your body does, you're thinking, is it clean or unclean? Different things you encounter, that's training you to think, this God who lives with us is 
amazing and different, holy as the Bible would put it. And I need to take that seriously. These laws were like this illustration to teach us how different God is, how holy he is, how seriously we need to take him. They were there for that. They weren't about things that are right and wrong in the same way that we might call moral stuff is. And so even the book of Leviticus, this law book in the Old Testament, you get a section of these ritual laws, all the food stuff, all the bodily discharges, mold on your house walls and stuff. And the section about sexual ethics, um, including gay relationships, is much later in this section, which is all about be like your God, be holy like your God. So when we understand what the Old Testament law is doing, which I know is slightly confusing, it totally makes sense that Jesus affirms what the Old Testament it says on sex but it's actually we now because of what he's done are free to eat shellfish and do other things in those laws that's really helpful i just want to add as well because in, in your new testament when jesus uses that word pornea it's translated as just sexual immorality in a lot of our verses and for a long time that's kind of tripped me up because i thought well if we define sexual immorality based on our culture's understanding of morality then surely that's a shifting term but andrew's point that jesus uses the word pornea which is an allusion to the old testament is really key for understanding the anchor that i think jesus is putting down there okay next question and this is a it's a very uh yeah. Hard question. I recently got kicked out of my parents' church for being gay, and I can't get to another church. How do you suggest I deal with that? Apart from attack a fly. The first thing I want to say is just find somewhere you can talk to if you can. That must be so painful, and I'm so, so sorry that that's happened to you. And my first priority for you would be find somewhere you can tell it's happened, find somewhere you can cry with if you need to that sense of pain of what must feel like incredible rejection and is not the heart of god towards you and so yeah my first thing would be in a sense actually how do you handle some of that pain just find somebody you can tell somebody you can cry with you know in the book middle of the bible there's a book of psalms which basically shows us and illustrates that we can express anything to god and so i'd be going to god i'd be saying god i'm feeling angry I'm feeling rejected. I'm feeling hurt. Why has this happened? And it's really okay to say all of that stuff to God. That would actually be my kind of step one because I know I find that so painful because that shouldn't happen. And so my step one would be how do I help myself in this pain? And talking to someone and talking to God about that would be part of that. Always these questions are difficult. I don't know the ins and outs of situations. Idle world, try and have a chat with your parents. Where are they at with it? Chances are, we're sometimes told on LGBT stuff that the parent, our parents are our enemies. It's just not true. In the vast majority of cases, our parents love us, want us to thrive and flourish. See if you can start a conversation with them about it, about how it's felt, what's happened, and actually see how they can support you and help you in that. Talk to a youth leader if there's a youth leader you can connect with them. I guess it would be the question with your parents, actually, I really want to go to church, and this isn't working for me, so actually how can you help me to do that? I think on the kind of really practical side, that's where I'd encourage someone to start. As Christians, we are often accused of being homophobic or transphobic. How am I supposed to respond to this in a way that pleases the Lord? See, so I've taken the microphone and uh, now I have to say something. That's the trouble. Yeah, it's hard. Um, I feel like Andrew and I have a slight advantage because we can go, well, <laughs> exhibit A, God is not homophobic. Um, but I know for a lot of people, you, you can't do that. I've got a particular friend who um, is very concerned about this. Like she, 
dreads having someone come to her and go, oh, you're a Christian, you must think this. Um, it's, it's a big pain point for her. I think if, if, if someone is actually willing to engage in dialogue with you, you can just sit down with them and talk about the love of God. You can talk about Jesus. You can talk about how God does not exclude anybody for any reason, that no one sin is worse than any other, that Jesus is for them. Jesus died for them just as much as he did for you. And I think that's probably the best place to start. And, you know, you can, if you want, sit there and open up scripture and talk about the specifics of gender or sexuality or whatever. But I would start just with the love of God and how enormous that is. Yeah, I would just give, uh, I'm going to say three quick things and I'll probably forget one of the most sets. The first thing I say to any Christian who asks this is we need to check that we're not homophobic and transphobic. The reality is some Christians are. And actually, first thing is let's search our hearts. Let's put our hands up. Christians, we've done badly with these topics. We've treated people badly. We've thought badly. First thing is some heart searching. Is my heart response to someone who's same-sex attracted or someone who identifies trans, is that the same as Jesus' heart response? That's the first thing. The second thing is kind of showing and demonstrating that we're not homophobic or transphobic. So actually, we as Christians should be known as the best friends and the most loving people in school or college or whatever. We should be known as those who don't kind of talk behind people's backs. We should be known as those who are prepared to go out of our way to help people, known as those who are a safe pair of ears to come to if actually things are getting really tough. And so in a sense, even if people assume, oh, yeah, Christians, that means homophobic, transphobic, actually they go, but, but actually they are really different. They're not what I expect from a Christian. I keep being told Christians are like this, and yet they seem not to be. And especially if we've got gay or trans friends, that's just a wonderful example just to put the love of Jesus into action and show, no, we're loving you like we're loving everyone else. And then I give Ashley, then there might be a chance to actually get a chance to talk. And I think a great question to ask is, well, what do you mean I'm homophobic? What is it they, uh, how do they define their sense? What are they actually saying? Are they actually saying we have different ideas about where the parameters for acceptable relationships are? We've all got parameters, haven't we? We all think there are some relationships that shouldn't be sexual, that kind of stuff. Just as we follow Jesus, our parameters are in different places. And actually, you can just kind of diffuse the situation by exploring what do we really mean? And that might be a wonderful opportunity to talk about what God says about sex and even to talk about Jesus. That's really helpful. Um, Sex is a basic human need in life. So why would homosexuals be destined for a life with the burden of choice, sex or God? Sex is not a need. Um, Sex is a gift, if you're married, specify. Um, But it's not a need. You, this, yeah, intimacy is possible without sex, as I was talking about before. Love is possible without sex. God is the one who we need to look to. If you feel a lack in your life, if you feel, ah, oh, I'm, I'm, I need this, I need that, and you think sex is the thing that will fulfill that need, whatever it may be, that's not true. It's God that you need to look to. So, yeah, it, it's not that sex is a need and God is somehow being cruel by saying we can't have it apart from in this specific setting. It's that sex is a gift for a specific setting. But God is good and God fills all of our needs, no matter whether we're married or single. My follow-up question. Naughty, I know. I think part of the narrative behind sex being a need is that we, people, we've been taught and told that it is somehow unhealthy, mentally and emotionally unhealthy, to suppress sexual appetite and sexual desire. What's your response to that? That's definitely the narrative, yeah. I think people are worried about people like me who are now 30 
have not had sex, I'm not intending on having sex, and people think, oh dear, you know, so it's going to start going wrong. My simple answer is always to ask, I'm yet to hear of someone going to the doctor and being diagnosed having too little sex. It may have happened, I'm yet to hear that story. I mean, you just think, you know, you first want to ask, well, what goes wrong if you don't have sex? Or sometimes it's not kind of a biological need, sometimes it's like an adulthood need. To be a proper adult, you need to have sex. And I just want to say, says who? And so what, what happened? What magically happens when you have sex that now I am an adult? It's just crazy, isn't it? And yet that's absolutely what TV and film and music is telling us. So I just kind of want to push against that in your sense. I looked into this at one point. I thought, yeah, people say it's like really unhealthy and stuff. I thought, I wonder what the, the research says, what scientists and what we call peer-reviewed research that's really rigorously done in Czech research says. It's fascinating. The research shows that if you're in a long-term committed relationship, i.e. marriage, not having sex is detrimental to your emotional well-being i.e. married people need to have sex to up their emotional well-being. The same piece of research showed that if you're not in a long-term committed relationship, not having sex does not impact your emotional well-being. So fascinatingly, these scientists have found that living out exactly what the Bible says in terms of sex is the best thing for our emotional well-being. Mm. So be encouraged. Funnily enough, what the creator has planned and designed, scientists are finding in actual experience. Thank you. It's like the different type of question but do you both attend pride celebrations i don't (laughs) (laughs) i haven't i'll put it that way pride's really complex isn't it the origins of pride is gay people trans people were being genuinely terribly mistreated actually started in this pub uh, the stonewall something in uh, america where basically police were for no apparent reason raiding each night and beating up and locking up the gay people and the trans people horrific and one night the lgbt community said we're not standing for it we're turning around we're fighting back probably kind of goes Yeah, good. And so actually part of Pride is celebrating actually we are growing to a place actually now where we don't discriminate against, we don't pick on gay and trans people. We don't think we're these disgusting kind of weirdos who should be pushed out of society and she recognised we're all experiencing sexuality and gender questions all of the time. And so that whole side of it, I want to go, yeah, actually it's really good that I can live in a country where I can be open about the fact I'm attracted to guys and that is okay. But part of pride also is actually saying, this stuff I feel inside, that's who I am. And I'm going to embrace that as who I am, and that's how I'm going to find my best life. And I just don't think that's true. And so part of me is also really sad, because pride also actually is a, a lie which isn't true, and it's actually taking people away from the best life they could be enjoying. Because our best life is found by living out who God says we are. Your best, best life is found by being a child of God, stewarding your sexuality in line with that. So I'm kind of so torn, because there's parts of pride I really want to celebrate, but parts of think, oh man, my heart aches for people who are just like me, and I long for them to know Jesus and love him, because that is where true fulfillment is found, not for any of us, whether gay or straight, in our sexuality or in a romantic relationship. So really kind of split feelings, which makes it difficult. I will just say, I gave Andrew the mic because I knew he would say all that better than I would. I agree with what he just said. (laughs) Okay, well, if a sexual relationship is not right between people of the same sex, what about a romantic relationship that doesn't have sex involved? Don't you think that romance is one of the hardest things to define? I think it's really tricky. I'm still, uh, for years, that's, that's one of my big sex questions. For years, when wrestling is, what is romance? And what's the line between a, say, what we might call platonic friendship, or a non-romantic friendship, and romance? Really difficult to know. Two 
ideas I have in my head. One is, is a relationship which is clearly veering towards some sort of sexual activity, by which I mean an activity you're going to exclusively do with someone you want to feel very close to and connected with and intimate with. The other thing, I think a way we could describe romantic relationships is the thing of exclusivity. When I look in scripture, what, what's marriage? It's partly the sexual union, but also it's the exclusive thing. The Bible talks about you, you leave your other home, you leave your father and your mother, your family, you unite to someone, you form basically a new family unit, a new home. And that is an exclusive thing. Remember from yesterday, it's exclusive because Christ and the church, that relationship is exclusive. And so I think we could perhaps describe romances in some sense about exclusivity and in a sense a journey towards sexual activity. They're the two things, the kind of best way that I can put it. But I think what this question was asking is kind of how do we, how did the question put it? If sexual activity is off the, t- off the table, what about other forms of intimacy? Right. And this is where what Ashley has so helpfully shared is so helpful about friendship, actually. We need to reclaim non-sexual physical intimacy. So things like hugs. I've got a mate who I'm convinced he does this deliberately. When I'm around at their house, very often he will sit on the sofa next to me, pretty close, often legs touching, not next to his wife. And I'm sure that's one of the ways that he knows I can experience appropriate non-sexual physical intimacy as a single guy who's not having sex. And so we think actually, how do we genuinely love each other? And how do we find the appropriate ways of expressing that in physical ways sometimes? My primary love language is definitely touch. That's a big deal for me. How do we do that? So another one would be I've got a mate um, where I used to live who definitely is not interested in physical touch and hugs and it's not at all. But to this day, every time we say hello and we say goodbye, he will make the effort to hug me. I think I'm the only person other than his wife I've ever seen him hug. But he knows that matters to me. He knows it helps me experience the fact he loves me. He's doing deliberate things like that. So we get to experience intimacy even if we're single and celibate. Wonderful. Listen... Your questions are beautiful, remarkable. You are an incredible group of young people and I want to just heartily commend you and thank you. For many of you, I appreciate this is going to be the first time you've heard this point of view in your lives. And my encouragement to you would be to go on a journey in exploring the sorts of things that they've laid out. Because for many of you growing up in a society like this, these ideas are quote unquote dangerous um, and potentially harmful. And yet your willingness to engage thoughtfully and listen so attentively to what they have to say and so respectfully is just beautiful thank you there have been a hundred over 130 questions we haven't got time to go through them all so before we finish ashley's gonna or ashley and andrew are gonna just plug a couple of resources to help you for next steps and then andrew's gonna say a few things before we close cool um couldn't get away without recommending books so this one is called the plausibility problem by our friend ed shaw it's a very good book it's not just that he's our friend um the church and same-sex attraction so kind of the questions that you might be asking about well hang on how is this like a reasonable way to ask people to live aren't you denying them intimacy aren't you denying them family all those kind of questions he covers those really helpfully the other book is seven myths about singleness by sam albury which uh, someone over there is going to get such a good book so there you go double recommendation um yeah it kind of does what it says on the tin i won't say anything else about it another one would be livingout.org the organization i work for where you'll find lots of stories videos about people like me ashley podcasts blogs articles all manner of things and i would vouch that most of the questions you might be thinking of you'll find something on there that will help you so have a good explore that and come back this afternoon 3 p.m in the engaged tents that's kind of the end of the concourse and just on the right hand side from here we're going to share some more of our stories to talk about a few other things but a good amount of time will be taken to q a so bring your questions back then we'll get through some 
more of them then because we really love to engage with you and to share more of our, our kind of experiences with you. Don't forget, if anything is being kind of flagged up for you today, why not go talk to the youth leader or the prayer team are going to be over here. We really want to look after each other across this week. So do uh, say hello to them if you need to. Thanks so much for coming and we'll see That's you next time. Thank you.